Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, you lucky, lucky people, you get two for the price of one. I occasionally do this, and I find it interesting how there are sometimes these strange echoes in pop culture that actually fit together quite neatly. Right now, gotta be honest, it's an obvious one, okay? Uh, Right now, out in the cinemas, and indeed being discussed around the Oscars, we have two historical movies, and they absolutely have a link together. They are Mary Queen of Scots and The Favourite, which means, of course, we're going to be talking about Jacobean revolutions. We're going to be talking about uh, Tudor justice systems. We're going to be talking about code breaking. We're going to be talking about same-sex relationships and so much more. So please listen in for what's going to be a huge mishmash of how to tell a historical story and perhaps the dangers of telling a real piece of history. Let's get on with it, shall we? Just before we get going, always worth pointing out, you can continue the conversation. Been having a bit of fun recently, on particularly on Twitter. We're at Neon Podcast on Twitter and Neon Podcast on Facebook as well. Or you can find us on Patreon if you like this so much you'd like to support us. Thank you very much for that. We're on uh, patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. And yes, funnily enough, you can find at Gem Duduchu, that's D-U-D-U-C-U, on Twitter as well. Love, love to say hello and sort of talk about what you guys would like to hear next. But look, how can I not talk about 2019 and the fact that there are two movies about serious pieces of history and you know genuinely trying to set themselves in this historical era about female power play and that's what's really fascinating because when you look at an awful lot of historical movies we are talking about men now i i want to be quite clear on this if there's if i have a bugbear i have a few bugbears okay uh, about historical phrases or or little pithy sayings about history like you know um history repeats itself uh, first time as a drama second time as a farce or man has learnt from history that man has never learnt from history none of this is true it sounds great but there are plenty of examples in history that that prove those to be completely wrong and one of the other ones that I don't like is when people say, uh, it's always about his story. What about her story? Okay, let's go back to where the word comes from, okay? It's Greek. Uh, and we'll be talking about Greece uh, a surprising amount, seeing we're going to be largely talking about Scotland, England and France. But anyway, um, yes, so uh, Greece, uh, the... <laughs> 
they they invented it. Herodotus is is supposed to have written in his, uh, his book. Um, uh, it's meant to be the first history book. Now there were chronicles before that, but this was the first time to try and explain as a narrative what's going on in the world and what's been going on in the past. Uh, it was a terrible history book because Herodotus failed to put any dates in it, which is kind of important when we're talking about history. But anyway, it was a start. Okay, but. He used the Greek word histori- uh, historiokos, okay? So that's where we get the word history from. It is by sheer coincidence that H-I-S at the beginning of that word means a male possessive pronoun uh, in, in the English language, okay? It's not literally male stories. So starting to say herstory means you don't even understand what the word is. But it is a fair comment that as soon as we get into anything from 200 years ago or earlier, it's all very male dominated. And it is worth reminding everybody that slightly more than 50% of the population has and always will be, hopefully, female. And uh, you might be going, well, how can you assert that you know, surely it's a 50-50 split? Well, here's the thing. Mother Nature is a very practical creature and understands that, sadly, um, there are occasions where childbirth leads to the death of the mother. It's a horrible thing. That's obviously something that a man uh, never has to suffer with. So, yeah, uh, because of that, there you have a statistically slightly higher percentage chance of bearing female children than uh, male offspring uh, because you have to factor into the fact that some of those are likely to die in childbirth so uh, there you go there you go first bit of biological fact there today on on the podcast but yes it's a fair comment we you know we start using complicated words like patriarchal society and things like that but what seems to be out there is you you don't want to oversell this this definitely has been overstated but when you look at prehistory there's an awful lot of female figures and sort of feminine fertility symbols and things like that women clearly were a bigger deal in prehistoric cultures than they are in soon as we get into historical cultures there were sort of flashes of moments it's interesting pointing out that pharaoh is a specifically male term in fact pharaoh is sort of such a powerful word you can't use the term king because king relates to the actual human being as i stated in the game of thrones podcast the idea of a pharaoh is that they are divine they are a god on earth and because of that pharaoh literally means great house so it it can't even dare mention the actual human being involved it mentions the actual building or, or edifice that they represent but it is a, a male term, which is why you get people like Hatshepsut and Cleopatra VII. She was the famous one, uh, you know, wearing stick-on beards in ceremonies saying, hey, yeah, yeah, we're guys, honestly. Um, so, yes, it, 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 this is the interesting thing about women in history. We We do not have a long list of queens making huge important decisions in history it's invariably the guys and when women do crop up um that's very much the outlier let's let's be honest about that okay please do not blame me i'm not saying that this is right what i'm saying is this is what's happened okay and you know it is worth pointing out here and i've been getting a bit of this recently on my facebook page which is called history gems if you if you want to see little nuggets fun nuggets of history have a look there but uh, people can get very very angry about certain moments in history and my question is why how is your anger how is your expelling of energy and whipping yourself up into a frenzy going to change the outcome because it happened whether you like it or not, it just happened, okay? Maybe we can learn from it. Maybe we can try and avoid making mistakes from the past. But please don't get angry about it, okay? So, looking at English history for a moment, uh, it is worth pointing out that when you get to Henry I, he was one of the sons of William the Conqueror. When he died in 1135, his son had died a few years earlier in something called the White Ship Disaster. It was just simply crossing the English Channel. It was more treacherous than you think. He died. So he had a daughter, 
and he got on his deathbed everybody to swear that his daughter Matilda would become the new Queen of England. And all the loyal subjects, all the barons and the aristocracy said, yes, absolutely, we agree. And then as soon as he died, a lot of the majority of them picked uh, a, a relative called Stephen. And so he had a King Stephen. And Matilda went, wait, what? And between Matilda and Stephen, there was about a 20-year civil war in England. This is a period that's largely forgotten about, okay? But that was the first attempt to power. And even Matilda, who originally went, hang on, I should be running the show, okay? Uh, I'm married with a kid as well, so I will be able to come up with some, some heirs later on. Uh, even then, uh, she she was unable to, to gain the throne. And eventually, even her argument changed. When I'm not fighting for myself anymore, I'm fighting for my son, who should be the rightful heir to the throne. And his name's Henry as well. We all agree that's a good name. And because Stephen and Matilda, one side could never get the killer blow on the other. And because Stephen's son died, the agreement was, all right, fine, Stephen, you, you rule till you die, right? Off you go. But as soon as you die... Then Matilda's son, Henry, Henry II, will become King of England. That was the first female attempt at ruling England, and it led to a bitter, bitter civil war. Fast forwarding a few centuries, we then get to people like, well, you, you then get Henry VIII uh, uh, dying, and then we get Edward the Sixth. Fifth, fifth, sixth. Sorry, off the top of my head, I can't remember. I think sixth, sixth. Sorry, his his son dying at the age of 15. And then what? Now, let's not talk about Lady Jane Grey, although I will be linking her back to a moment. Because as soon as somebody is executed in history, we always assume that they were a wonderful person. And let's face it, execution isn't a particularly nice thing. But... Just because they ended badly does not mean automatically they, they lived a great and virtuous life, that they would definitely have been better than the other option. Lady Jane Grey, on this occasion, yes, we're talking about a young woman who was in the middle of power politics and she was executed. And then we have the first undisputed female monarch of England, Mary. She is not remembered well. I mean, admittedly, she did have more than 200 Protestants executed. But she opened the door. She opened the door to her, her half-sister, Elizabeth, having far less of a contested reign. But this is where we start seeing civilization in England working out, oh, oh, you can have a female monarch and everything doesn't just instantly get set on fire. Where does all this lead us to? Well, it leads us to the first of these movies, Mary Queen of Scots. And, and if you so, look, there are clearly going to be spoilers. All right. But th this is history. And I'm not entirely sure how much a 400 year old bit of information is a spoiler. OK, but you can see that what I've been saying leading up to this echoes into what we've already been talking about, because, of course, Mary Queen of Scots ends up being executed. And you know, she's clearly contemporary with Mary and obviously Elizabeth as well. Now, it's worth rewinding back to that Edward, which I now can confirm is definitely Edward VI for the record. <laughs> and he, he, when he was a boy, there was a battle against the Scots. And Scotland is incredibly proud of its heritage and national identity, as it should be. This is a country that, while England had the pound, it's worth pointing out Scotland had the unicorn. Come on, what's a better name for a currency, for heaven's sakes? And also, I want to sort of link this, if you like, to bigger politics going on here. You know, I, I mentioned uh, briefly people like Henry II, and and we're obviously with the favourite. We're going to go on to. Uh, we're going to go on to Queen Anne as well, another female monarch. But all of this is kind of linked with Scotland and France. France, understanding the relationship the British Isles has had with France, is vital in understanding political decisions in, in Britain. And I'm using the word Britain very carefully there, because for centuries there was something that became to be known as the old A-U-L-D, because it's Scottish, the old alliance between Scotland and France. I'm terribly sorry to tell these, this to Scottish people, 
on the big picture, Scotland on its own could not withstand a sustained English invasion. Oh, Jim, what about the Battle of Bannockburn? You're right. But the reason why the Battle of Bannockburn is so famous is because it was one of the rare occasions that in a pitched battle, Scotland won. Scotland just simply has less of everything, apart from haggis, than England. And when you look at that in the pre-industrial era, that means if, if I've got more armies, more resource, more money, more food, I'm going to eventually win. That's, in essence, what happened in Wales, okay? So Scotland needed an ally. And England was always fighting with France. Maybe they were fighting with France too, who knows? So it made complete sense for both France and Scotland to have this alliance. As soon as England looked like it was winning too hard in Scotland, France could start causing problems with the English territories in France. As soon as France looked like it was on the brink of defeat, Scotland could invade the north of England. It is in perennially incredibly hard to fight a war on two fronts. So this worked magnificently for Scotland. Scotland needed an ally. Yes, bravery is an important factor. You know, independence and kilts, which incidentally have only been around for about 300 years. Braveheart would never have worn them. Uh, all these things are super important. You knock yourselves out. But there is a harsh reality of logistics and economics and resource. Scotland needed an ally. France was the perfect ally. What France and Scotland, they were never going to be arguing about territory. And they both had a problem with England. So it made complete sense. So under Edward's reign, there was once again a big battle between Scotland and, and England. And Scotland got uh, annihilated. Um, there was an earlier one. Uh, Scotland took them longer to get into Renaissance-era uh, modes of fighting. They were still very much the kind of Braveheart Shiltrums, which are sort of like large piles of sort of pikemen, uh, excellent against cavalry. Um, but they, you know, they didn't have the longbowmen. They didn't move, evolve into cannons. There was a, an earlier battle, Battle of Flodden. This is under the reign of uh, Henry VIII. Um, so, yes, although it's interesting, it's, it was his first wife who was running the show because well, uh, Henry was in France. There we go, France fighting the French. And then we had an English uh, battle against Flodden in Flodden where the Scottish were annihilated. But, yes, this was another battle that happened uh, under the reign, technically, of, of the Edward. And uh, Scotland again got annihilated in this battle. The king, the Stuart kings of Scotland at Flodden, we had a James who was killed by a cannonball. Um, and then during this other time, we have uh, another Stuart king. And he wasn't actually at the battle because he was very, very ill. But clearly the sound of the, uh, the, the news of the defeat was what finished him off because he died weeks later of, of natural causes. And so he had an infant child called Mary. And that was the last of the Stuart line. So as a baby, Mary was sent to France. You see how all this is connected? You see, I wasn't sort of just padding out stuff. You can see the importance here. So it is important to point out that Mary, well, first of all, she didn't have wonderful ginger hair as she's portrayed in the movie. OK, we have paintings of Mary and she was a brunette. OK, just just was. Uh, but of course, you know, we instantly associate orange hair, you know, with, with Scotland. But also, I guess in the movie, there's a certain element of, look, we got two redheads fighting against each other. And Elizabeth was admittedly a redhead. Or was she? Because it's worth pointing out that like uh, a lot of people at the time, she had her head shaved because of lice. Uh, Elizabeth was not a looker. Margot Robbie is, and she's done a very good job looking really severe and stuff. And indeed, you can you can tell that she's been made up to look like the the orange hair is is a wig. Um, but yes, it was is it was a wig in her case. Uh, and uh, the other thing about uh, Elizabeth is she had uh, pop marks and she wore sort of very heavy paint, uh, the white lead paint, which is absolutely portrayed in the movie. She wasn't like that as a young woman, obviously. And also she had incredibly ra rancid teeth. That's because in the Tudor era, 
toothpaste, um, which only the rich had, by the way. Uh, they would eat lots and lots of sugar because it was fabulously expensive and it tastes nice, okay? Um, they would have, you know, marzipan stuff and, you know, frosted, sugared, glazed things. Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Tudor toothpaste was made out of more sugar. So undeniably, they had terrible breath. Uh, they had rancid teeth. Uh, she was, uh, on one occasion, somebody painted a really flattering portrait of her and she went, yes, that's caught my essence and then got another painter to copy that painting because she thought that was basically as good as just painting me so yes queen elizabeth was was quite vain a little bit crazy too but anyway the point is this going back to this whole sort of like scottish ooh scottish wonderful scottish 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 look you know like i say you want to be proud of your country be proud of your country but you also have to recognize the flaws and problems with it too Mary grew up in France. Her first language was French. Everything she knew basically was French. And that's fine because she was basically an exile. She became a woman. She became of age and went to Scotland. None of this has anything to do with Elizabeth. Okay. She then went to Scotland to reclaim the throne. And guess what? We basically have a Matilda situation again because... Scotland was, you had some people pro-Mary and some people anti-Mary, happy with how things are working out at the moment. And if we give it over to her, I'm probably going to lose some power. You know, the usual human stuff. And so she basically got ousted out of Scotland and fled to England, where which her cousin uh, was ruling. She had nowhere else to go. It, the, the journey, the sea journey from Scotland to France would have been incredibly dangerous. It was a logical thing for her to do. And she assumed that, you know, Elizabeth might well give us aid. England had given various claimants to the throne aid in the past. You know, going back to the Battle of Bannockburn, just prior to that, under Edward I and at the beginning of Edward II's reign, you did have different factions in Scotland, some pro-English, some anti-English. And it's just that these pro-Scottish ones or the you know, pro-Robert Bruce brave-hearty ones won, that that's why we can now create this narrative of you know, Scotland the brave and boo England. But in the case of Elizabeth, she was vulnerable. She had no heir. She had seen what had happened to her mother. She was executed. Her mother was Anne Boleyn. You know, it's worth remembering that Tudor England was a kind of scary place. She was a Protestant queen. The previous one, Mary, was very Catholic and had murdered Protestants. And, you know, the you have the Pope in Rome who centuries earlier had said, you will be absolved of all your sins if you go on crusade. We know that going from somewhere like Germany to Jerusalem is incredibly dangerous and you're going to have to fight constantly against Muslims as soon as you get into Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, all the way to Jerusalem. Going to be pretty scary, going to be pretty hard. So do you know what? If you do this for God, you're definitely going to go to heaven. Anything bad you have done up until going on crusade, and crusade doesn't count as doing something bad to a pope, Everything you do will be, uh, you know, absolved, washed away, and you're definitely going to heaven. And in an era when you know, people really, really believed in the afterlife, life, they, they went, they went for it basically. But that had morphed by the time you get to Queen Elizabeth's reign, to the point where there's the. A, a, a papal edict called Regens in Excelsis, which basically says, oh, you know all that stuff about going on crusade, washing away your sins? Yeah, we'll give you all that if you just assassinate Queen Elizabeth I. Don't have to go all the way to uh, Jerusalem. That's been lost for centuries anyway. But no, all you have to do is just, you know, just stab or poison good old Queenie Elizabeth. And yeah, you definitely, definitely go to heaven for murder. So that was what was happening in Queen Elizabeth's court. And she had a right-hand man called Francis Walsingham, who was basically the head of the secret state of, of the Tudor era. He had a spy ring across the whole of Europe. Um, he had the very best, best sort of like, uh, you know, covert operatives and code breakers and spies and people who could intercept messages and things like that. He really was... Absolutely essential to keeping Queen Elizabeth I alive. Why am I saying all this stuff? Because, let's get to the movie now. So Mary is locked up. She is kept in captivity for over a decade. And, you know, in that situation, she's going to start reaching out to other powers. 
And this is where people give Mary a mulligan. Uh, where people give her sort of like some time off going, she was just a pawn in a greater game. No, she wasn't. She was a queen of Scotland who was in captivity, who had been forced to flee her own country, and she wanted power back. You know, if she decided to renounce everything, uh, you know, she could have stayed in sort of... And, and, you know, she was under house arrest. She wasn't locked up in a cell or anything like this. Generally, monarchs which get captured are kept in decent you know, luxury because that was just the done thing in those days. There was no torture. There was no bullying. You know, she would have been allowed to ride around. She would have had people keeping an eye on her, but she would have had people keeping an eye on her if she'd been Queen of Scotland as well. It was not a hard life. Yes, she wanted to be queen, but you don't get everything you want in life. Sorry about that. But she started corresponding with various groups and uh, to basically try and get power back. And it was all written in code. Now, this is all kind of alluded to in the movie. And what's interesting is both the favourite and with Mary is we get choices okay i don't know why everybody is wearing such dour colors apart from queen elizabeth in in this movie okay yes people would have had dark colored outfits but people would also have had very vividly colored outfits here i am going to just quickly jump into a sidebar of history color is a really interesting story of status in history and despite sort of popular belief, peasants didn't walk around in sort of like deep browns and dark blues and things like that. Any strong colour was expensive to make because you before artificial synthetic colours, getting a bright vivid colour would have meant putting that piece of fabric through the dyeing process multiple times. So to get a rich blue, you probably would have had to have dyed that thing blue five times so it's going to be five times the price of just a a a vaguely creamy colored top and actually that's what your average peasant they would have been worn very very light colors uh creams not so much whites but you know very light greens very light blues um you know they might have spent a few pence on, on getting it on getting it colored once so therefore to have an incredibly rich luscious red or green cape or something like that was a sign of status there's no way people would have been standing around wearing dark clothing you would have wanted to look fabulous to show everybody how wealthy you were and linked to that and i'll just give you this other thing for free you get purple we always associate purple with royalty and that's because prior again to artificial colouring, the only way you could get purple was through the crushing of these specific shells in the Mediterranean, and they sort of released a purple dye. This is obviously fabulously expensive, and as I just pointed out, you're probably going to have to put that cloth through several processes of this already fabulously expensive process. So pretty much only the richest of the rich could afford purple, and you even get this concept of porphyrogeniture in the late Roman Empire and, and Byzantine Empire, and even for, for a time in the, in the Ottoman Empire because they sort of ruled Constantinople, of being born in the purple, porphyrogeniture, which means that the, the, the wife of the sultan or emperor gave birth in a room clad in purple, uh, so a sign of your ultimately imperial status, because only an emperor could afford something like that going on, okay? So a sign of status and a sign of your validity to the throne, or, you know, seat of power, call it whatever you will. So, back to Mary, we then have the thing about, uh, you know, the interception of the letters. Now, for me, and for a lot of people, this is the most interesting part of the story of Mary and Elizabeth. They did correspond with each other via letters. Sorry, spoiler for the movie, they never physically met. But here's the thing, Elizabeth was recognised that she kind of couldn't keep her there forever, So maybe we execute her. But Elizabeth had a dilemma. If she had no good reason, if she had no legitimacy behind the execution, well, what's to stop another queen for just arbitrarily losing her head, eh? So she needed proof. Went to Walsingham and said, we know that she's sending these coded letters out. Well, the conversation was the other way around. Walsingham was presumably said... Uh, you know, we know she's sending coded letters, let's try and crack the codes. And he sort of scoured Europe to find a good cryptographer, says Jem, stumbling over that word, cryptographer, somebody who can break codes, okay, and, and make codes, and ended up going to a Dutchman. So now we have the fate of a nation. The 
the life of a queen was literally hanging in how effective is this code? And they did manage to break, crack it. And they were able to come with specific plans. I mean, this is where people go, oh, well, she's a pra- 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 prawn. <laughs> For the record, Mary Queen of Scots was in no way a crustacean, okay? Uh, so she specifically was backing ideas to gain power back again and potentially harm her cousin, which is a clear and present danger. And in this era, it was very Game of Thrones. You either win or you die. And they now had hard evidence. And what is fascinating is that when this hard evidence was presented to Queen Elizabeth, she still dithered. She didn't instantly go, oh, that's it. She paused. She waited for more than a week before she signed the death warrant. And indeed, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Mary was executed. Sorry to tell you this. Took three strokes of the axe to, to finish her off. Nasty. Okay. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But this code breaking, this anxiety about whether I should or shouldn't kill, whether, you know, it's sort of like, when do we get the evidence? How do we get the evidence? It's in the movie. But it's a very tiny bit of the movie. What they're really worried about is the the power playing between these two women, which I find fascinating. I'm a man. I have never been a woman power playing with another woman. And I recognize that there is a different dynamic going on there, which we very rarely see in history. And that, and I understand that what they're going for in Mary Queen of Scots is, it is a character study. It is about the electricity created by two queens where there can only be one to quote highlander so i've been going on and on about mary queen of scots but i now want to go over to the favorite because uh the favorite is directed by uh yorgos lanthimos yeah, he's Greek. Told you we'd be going back to Greece. He, he's he been very active in the last few years, creating some very interesting movies. The Lobster, anybody? Uh, it's a Colin Farrell movie with uh, Rachel Weisz, I believe. Um, I seem to remember, yes, so she's obviously in The Favourite too, uh, where they have to find love or you get turned into an animal in the case of a lobster. Uh, just crazy idea of a movie. And I believe that was Oscar-nominated as well. But we, we now have The Favourite. And... Look, you know, when you have a director who is as visionary and as uh, left field as that, you're not going to get a straightforward retelling of a story, okay? Decisions were made. I am not a huge fan of some of the the decisions. Like, uh, at times they use, like, a fisheye lens. Everything's kind of distorted. It looks like you're kind of staring through almost like a crystal ball. Everything's kind of curved at the edges of the picture. Uh, maybe that's to show the enclosed, claustrophobic nature of the, the royal court or just, you know, how sort of surreal the court is. There's also a completely unnecessary moment where in slow motion there is a f- naked fat guy covering his bits wearing a huge wig being pelted by tangerines. I'm I'm not making this up. It, it It's there. 
I don't know why. It doesn't add anything other than you sit there in the cinema going, what? (laughs) But I will give this movie so many passes because the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, the tale of Queen Elizabeth I has been done so many times. The Tudors, oh God, you know, how many times do we need the same stories told over and over again? But Queen Anne, when is she ever talked about? She's an important moment in history. Do you remember I said that there was that Scottish Stuart monarch who had Mary, Queen of Scots, as her daughter? Well, to cut a long story short, Queen Elizabeth I, when she dies, she has no heirs. So it's Mary's child, James, who is known as James I in England and James VI in Scotland. And he unifies the crowns of England and Scotland and technically Wales, but let's not go there. So we have the Stuart dynasty and his son, James's son is Charles I, who has his head cut off. Okay, so we have more executions. This is a family that's really unlucky. Okay, they've had people die of natural causes, be overthrown, executed, died in battle. The Stuarts really did not have a good time of it. But we then uh, we then have. Uh, So after Charles I executed with this brief period of republic in England and uh, then Charles's son, Charles II, he comes back, the restoration, the restoration of uh, royal power. But if you like, that's the point, the turning point. Up until Charles I, the kings and queens, their top dog. What they say goes, parliament can only advise. But after the civil war and Charles II is brought back, now Parliament has more power than the king or queen. Now, it isn't just instantaneous to constitutional monarchy. The monarchs still have a lot of power, but it it ebbs. So by the time we get to Anne, she is the last Stuart monarch. You know, what's shown beautifully in the movie, this isn't true, but she has 17 rabbits, okay? But what is true is she had 17 children who either died in miscarriage or child in, died in infancy. Her, the one that survived till the age of 10 was Prince William. And it's a, such a sad story. This was a woman who absolutely understood her duty as a monarch was to produce an heir and a spare and biology kept thwarting her. It's an incredibly sad story, and I think they do that marvellously. The other thing is that Anne had these very intense relationships. What the favourite is fundamentally about is a power play between three women. We got the queen, and we got two potential favourites, hence the term the favourite, okay? And these were real women, and basically their rise to power and who they were related to is all true. But... This is the thing. In, in, in The Favourite, there is absolutely no ambiguity. These are lesbian relationships, okay? And it is worth pointing out that people saying, oh, well, you know, it was much discussed at court. Yeah, it was always discussed in court. Whoever got close to the king or queen, well, the only natural thing if I'm an oppo- opponent is to say this is an unholy union. They are gay or they're lesbians because an easy way to besmirch the other lot. Maybe these people, these royals did have gay relationships. Maybe. But we do not know that for fact. We all know that we could have close relationships with people of the same sex and not sleep with them. OK, I've got lots of great male friends, really sort of close male friends. I do not find them attractive in any way. Sorry, guys. I love you, but I don't love you. OK, um, and that's fine. The other thing that's worth pointing out in the favorite is to make this intense you know, female relationships work is is there is a bit of. Of, of a flaw in the film because they talk about these 17 sort of miscarriages and all that clearly means that there's been a man on the t- on the territory and going on in the background of the favorite is the wars of spanish succession and we have a guy called john churchill we see him a little bit in the movie and it, critically john churchill is married to sarah and sarah is one of the favorites rachel vice in the movie the the woman who has the close connection with queen anne at the beginning of the film and is the sort of the cousin to Abigail, who's who's now arrived and, you know, is going to start vying for her own place in, in the court. OK, I don't want to say too much because, hey, unlike Queen Mary, you don't know an awful lot about, oh, sorry, Mary Queen of Scots, I should say. Uh, you don't know an awful lot about Queen Anne. So, yeah, in, enjoy the ride, really. Uh, and, and pretty much 
the overarching power struggle is fairly accurate, although sort of individual bits like, you know, Rachel Weiss's characters at times dressing very much like a man. No, that didn't really happen. Um, you know, there are loads of historical inaccuracies. There's no poisoning, for example. And uh, but but anyway, I was going to go on to something else. I'll come to that in a moment. But here is an important point. So Rachel Weiss's character, Sarah, was married to John Churchill. John Churchill. Yes, the Churchills. You go down the, the family tree. You do get to Winston, by the way. John Churchill, if you ask uh, British military historians, is the single greatest general in British history. Honestly, he is. Uh, People know about the Duke of Wellington. Yeah, he was good. And he obviously fought Napoleon as well. But uh, John Churchill uh, was revolutionary. He revolutionized logistics. Um, He fought against the French at a time when nobody was beating the French. And here at Oudenarde, at Lille, at Blenheim, he he carried out sort of crushing victories on on the French from kind of out of nowhere. Um, So, yes, he's a super important man. He's also a sort of I've got soft spot for him. You know, he'd spent many years sort of in doing Jacobean. So who are the Jacobites? Well, do you remember I mentioned Charles II? Well, you know, he was succeeded by one of his brothers, another son of Charles I. He was James II of England, James VII of Scotland, okay? But he was he was basically ousted by William and Mary. Let's let's just let's not get into a whole, whole dynastic power. But the point is, people who thought that that, that James was hard done by, became known as Jacobites. Guess where he went into exile? France, okay? And so so he was called uh, the old pretender, and he sort of like was constantly stirring up trouble in England and Scotland. And John Churchill was part of these sort of conspiracies and sort of like, you know, power playing. And John Churchill quite often ended up being on the wrong side. But he kind of got his act together and he kind of got his wife finagled into the court and had the ear of the queen. And so John Churchill finally had his sort of big shot at being a general and turned out to be an amazing one quite late on in life, into his 40s. So, you know, he he developed late in his career and turned out to be a real natural uh, at it. And I love the fact that, although this is power playing between three women, uh, fundamentally what this is about is, should we continue having a war with France? It's ruinously expensive. We've had a victory at Blenheim. We're even going to give you a palace. Yeah, it is worth pointing out Blenheim Palace was genuinely built by the British government as a thank you to John Churchill. It took years because it was so ruinously expensive. It sort of stopped and then it started again. But it's not named after the local area. The actual town Blenheim Palace is in is a town called Woodstock. It's named after the battle. You know, I guess you, you know, maybe somebody should have built the Duke of Wellington a palace called the Palace of Waterloo. Uh, so, But they didn't. Um, so yes, uh, Blindheim is actually the, the name of the place, but Blenheim is how we say it in England. So we get Blenheim Palace from that. There you go. A little bit of history there. And it is in the in the movie, which I like. You know, they sneak in good bits of history. The other thing that happened really importantly in Queen Anne's reign, and again you see this, is... As I'd already mentioned, Parliament was a thing. But we get under Queen Anne the rise of a two-party system. The Whigs and the Tories. Uh, sorry, Labour, you weren't to be invented for about another 150 years. And no offence, you're all to do with the Industrial Revolution and workers' rights, OK? So you get the Tories and the Whigs. You could kind of say the Conservatives versus the Liberals, as it were, or the landed gentry versus the mercantile uh, sort of uh, uh, class in society. And, you know, it was a democracy in the loosest sense. Obviously, women couldn't vote. There was nobody of colour voting. Basically, you had to be a rich man to vote. And you would get things like, you know, the Isle of Wight having the same amount of MPs as Birmingham. Uh, But I mean, later on, I'm talking later on when Birmingham did genuinely have a larger population than the Isle of Wight. I I digress. I got that one for, by the way, from Greg Chapman, Condensed History Gems. Check him out. I do stuff with him as well. Um, Anyway, so the point is that we, we actually get, you know, whether you like it or not, although this is a character study between these three women, and I'm going to put this out here. Everyone says it's the three of them, and they're all equally good, and they are all equally good, but I'm going to put it out there and say... Emma Stone for me is the is the best one. Abigail, she, she her character arc is bigger than anybody else's, and I think the way she goes from sort of like flighty noble girl to a schemer is far more satisfying than than you know Olivia Coleman. Yeah, everyone talks about Olivia Coleman, and this is where I'm going to sort of come onto a little bit of a problem I have with it. It seems to me that Olivia Coleman got a brief about do the madness of King George now. Queen Anne was a pe- was petulant, 
And, you know, there are elements of this relationship that's absolutely true. There is, you know, comments about how Sarah Churchill was so harsh on Queen Anne that she made her cry. So when you see her sort of chiding and chastising Queen Anne, that's pretty accurate to history. It is worth pointing out in both these movies, as soon as we have people behind closed doors having conversations, we've got no idea what people said. You know, there were no dictaphones. Nobody wrote, you know, word for word diaries. All that stuff has to be made up. It just has to be. Okay. But, you know, I think the question is, you know, is them being made up honest or not? Like the rabbits, completely made up, but it allows them to talk about a very sad and very important part of Queen Anne's life. And therefore, I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem if we're going to have something that looks all historically accurate and then suddenly, I don't know, um, you know, John Churchill loses you know, these battles or something like that. So, well, that, none of that actually happened and that's actually distorting everything. And if you like, the biggest historical accuracy and the biggest problem I have, and I understand why, to make this a movie about these three women and these three women's quest for power is, well... If you've got 17 miscarriages, you, um, well, 16 plus, you know, a few kids, um, then, yeah, you, uh, you've had to have had a husband. Now, because this is all pivotally about whether or not we give Churchill anything around Lille, the siege of Lille, we know that this is 1708. Okay, well, I mean, we, if, if you know your history, we know it's 1708, which means we also know that that's the year that Anne's husband died. Now, you could say that this is maybe we're, we're sort of this all happened immediately after his death. That's why he's not in the picture. But he is not mentioned once in the film. Also, maybe it could have opened with her mourning him, you know, tending on him or something like that. But to have a woman who's had 17 pregnancies and to have never mentioned the husband seems to only like girls is, you know, when you stop, when you stop to think, you go, hang on. So, yeah, that, that's a that's a slight problematic thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the sort of the whole ins and outs. You know, look, it's true. Anne had died of gout. OK, so having her sort of like worrying about her gout and sort of like, you know, which is very painful and therefore liking the sort of the, the you know, the relief of herbs and things like that. That's all great. And yes, men did dress like fops, but perhaps not quite as much as this, you know, the. The, the obviously the mood they're going for is a kind of insanity in the court, a surreal nature of the court, but it wasn't that bad. And also it is worth pointing out, compare it to France, okay? We are now into the reign of like Louis the Sun King and, and you know and, you know Versailles and you know, England by contrast was a far more buttoned down uh, Protestant uh, kind of sensible nation by comparison to sort of some of the real decadence that was going on. Yeah, I mentioned them once before, let's throw it again. This is also the period of sort of terminal decline in the Ottoman court, you know, so there's decadence there, there's decadence in France. You know, the if you were in Britain, you, you had one of the most efficient, one, one of the most comparatively sensible governments going on in the world at that time. And we are, we are of course, you know, generations away from America breaking away. But, yes, yeah, so I, I think that both these films, I'm so pleased that we have stories about female power, the stories of female contribution to the story of our nation or nations. This is important. But as I mentioned, Anne is a Stuart, so she can, she can go back. She is the, hang on, I'm going to have to do the quick maths on this. She is the great granddaughter, I believe, of Mary. Might have missed a great in there. But the point is, you know, there is a bloodline to Mary. There is a bloodline further up. Robert II in the early 1300s was the first Stuart monarch of Scotland. And his blood ends up unifying the the crowns of, of England and Scotland. And you you actually have in the 1740s, you have, do you remember I mentioned that James who got kicked out? Uh, and yes, so sort of, this is after Charles II. So James II, James VII, he was kicked out, went to, went to France. He tried a couple of times to come back again. Didn't happen. But the final throw of the dice, uh, the final Jacobite response was 1745. And we get his son. We had the old pretender. His son was known as the young pretender. Bonnie Prince Charlie. He comes to Scotland. The whole thing, by now, the whole idea is completely anachronistic. 
while he might technically have a technical bloodline relation, Britain doesn't run that way anymore. It might have worked 200 years earlier, but the monarch isn't as important. And what they now have after Anne dies, they cast around for a vague relative. They need a Protestant. Sorry, no Catholics. And they end up from the Hanoverian dynasty, George. So Anne is the last of the formerly crowned, undisputed Stuart monarchs. And we then go into the Georgian era. Really good name for it because we get literally Georges 1, 2, 3 and 4 back to back all the way into the 1820s. Okay, so uh, yeah, so Anne dies in 1714. So just over 100 years, a bit like the Tudors, we get this sort of Georgian era. Uh, The Tudor era also ran for just over 100 years. So I'm so glad that I've been able to sort of talk about these things. Um, you know, depending on when you listen to this, um, at, the, at the very least, Golden Globes have been won, BAFTAs have been won. Um, you also going to be getting, you know, they're going to be up for Oscars. Don't know who's going to win there yet. Let's see who wins there. Um, but but yes, I want you know. Olivia Coleman, if you like, is the most showy. I guess Rachel Weisz is the most buttoned down. She's the kind of the one who has fewer showy scenes and her character up because she's such an eminently sensible woman she isn't allowed to sort of cut loose nearly as much as the other two olivia coleman she's got the showy one but i'm sorry queen anne wasn't mad okay this is it's it's all performance rather than recreation and it's a great great performance don't get me wrong but personally i have a soft spot for emma stone i think that her character arc is that is the most but look isn't it great that we're talking about which of these three highly talented actresses, you know, which one kind of nudges it over the other ones? That's a great, healthy thing to be saying about the state of female roles in cinema rather than uh, just another person playing a bereaved mother or something like that. Well, I guess technically, <laughs> I guess as soon as I said that, you could argue that Anne is that. But there's so much more going on there. Right. That's been Neon's take on both Mary Queen of Scots and The Favourite. I know it's gone on a bit, but these are two fascinating, rich films. They're not flawless, not going to lie to you. Um, I think these are films that ultimately are going to be admired rather than loved. Uh, um, I think they're, they're also sort of, you know, perhaps not suitable for kids, certainly not The Favourite. Um, but I, it's always worth pointing out, please, please do continue the conversation about Neon. Even when the podcast finishes, you can still get in co- contact with us on social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter. That's Neon Podcast. Uh, you can uh, reach out to me, Jem Daduchu. And please, if you can afford it, go to Patreon. Uh, give us what you can can uh, spare. Much appreciated. That's Neon Podcast on Patreon.com. Thanks very much for listening. More historical goodness coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.